They're not just collateral damage. Journalists are targets in the information war over Ukraine. When the photo ops, just not worth it. British royals get a cool reception in the Caribbean. And piling up the likes, defectors from North Korea are vlogging down south. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. For more than three weeks now, Mariupol in southeastern Ukraine has been under siege and constant bombardment. Survivors are describing a ruined hellscape of a city with bodies piling up in the streets. Russia has used these tactics before in Aleppo, Syria, blockading the city, cutting the flow of information, creating panic and confusion, trying to break the will of the people. The Russians are encountering a form of resistance that is digitally armed. Journalists and citizens equipped with mobile phones are providing the reporting, and that's put them in the Kremlin's crosshairs. President Volodymyr Zelensky is also getting his side of the story out. The former actor is rallying and uniting Ukrainians and delivering some carefully crafted speeches to foreign audiences. Russia has expertise in the art of information warfare, but this time it's not going as planned. Our starting point this week is Mariupol. This is what remains of Mariupol in southeastern Ukraine. A besieged city the Kremlin does not want the world to see. A maternity hospital bombed, graves piling up. Images captured by two AP journalists who say their names were on a list to be hunted down by Russians. As they reported, with no information coming out, no pictures of demolished buildings and dying children, Russian forces could do whatever they wanted. If not for us, there would be nothing. And while those soldiers are out to stop journalism, they may as well target any Ukrainian with a mobile phone. Ukrainians have been mm, incredibly effective communicators because they've got a good story to tell. But they're doing what anyone in this situation in the 21st century would do. Instead of taking selfies of yourself and in a shopping mall, you are taking selfies of yourself in a bomb shelter and you're posting them out and to, you know, you're contributing to telling the stories. Smartphones have become like a weapon in this war. But every coin has two sides and every video that shows the debris of Russian rockets that can be geolocated helps Russian uh, military intelligence to understand uh, where they hit and correct their fire like next time. And uh, the recent example was a TikTok video posted by Ukrainian TikTokers that showed Ukrainian tanks just moving around this uh, shopping mall. And Russians saw that video and they bombed uh, the mall, killing eight people. This is a delicate line, you know, um, what you actually report on. Uh, don't report on your own troop movements because that will highlight them to the enemy who will strike at them. But on the other hand, you know, people uh, want to record, they want to document for the future, uh, whether it's for the outside world or for their children. History is being written as, as we talk. 
and uh, these days are not going to be forgotten. Where Russian forces have been unable to take control of an area, such as Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, they have forced the population into submission through airstrikes and artillery. Kharkiv has been leveled, largely abandoned, and Maria Avdieva has stayed behind. She's new to citizen journalism, a would-be witness to war crimes, who does her work with one eye on the International Court of Justice in The Hague. I am here to document the war crimes committed by Putin and his regime. I was not uh, you know, a war reporter or uh, anyone who was active on social media. But when the war started and I saw that the, this disinformation wave coming out of Russia, I saw that my role in this fight might be in uh, information battlefield. They deny the fact of war in Ukraine. They deny the fact of genocide, killing of civilians and children. Because Russia uses information as another kind of weapon. You hear the challenge right now when I speak to you. That it doesn't stop day and night. Russia continues terrorizing my sea. So that's why I'm trying to give as much information from the ground so that the uh, court in Hague will use these evidences to punish those who were responsible for committing war crimes in Ukraine. Having sent so many compelling dispatches from Kiev, attracting the attention of international audiences, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky now knows he has to keep it. The former actor, who played a fictional president in a television series before being elected to the real job, has brought some of his production team with him, scriptwriters turned speechwriters. They have tailored his speeches for specific politicians overseas, some Churchillian rhetoric for British parliamentarians. Language that's altered for the US Congress and again for the Israeli Knesset, tapping into the histories of those countries as a way of direct messaging their people and political leaders. Zelensky has a very competent group of speechwriters, scenario writers. He came to power after a TV series in which he played a crusading reformer. So he already had a team steeped in uh, the realities of the Ukrainian political situation. Remember, among the more successful American presidents in terms of public performance was Ronald Reagan, uh, who was an actor. Zelensky is an actor. He knows how to deliver. He knows how to turn on emotions, play on emotions. Countries can be compassionate, but still they preserve their own interests and they value their own history. America is only about America mostly. That is why Zelensky has been trying like, to put uh, them in our shoes. We have this young, charismatic leader and his military fatigues in the middle of the action. And on the other hand is puffy Putin 
on the side of a very long table, too afraid apparently to meet people face to face. But having said that, Putin is coming across as the leader that he wants to come across to the Russians right now. If you watch Russian TV, he is confident. He he is saying that, you know, white is black and, and up is, is down. And he's saying that Russia is defending itself and Russia is liberating and so on. But he's also incredibly mm, sort of confident and father figure like. With all of the news channels the Kremlin has at its disposal and a disinformation industry that's been years in the making, Vladimir Putin entered this war of narratives holding most of the cards. Despite that, the Russians have proven incapable of stopping the news coming out of the battlefield. Citizen journalism, powered by mobile phone technology, is a big part of that. So is traditional war zone reporting correspondents and camera crews in the field with targets on their back. Ukraine, in its darkest hour, is experiencing a golden age of journalism, if that's any consolation. They are reporting from the most difficult conditions, not just shelters, villages outside of Kyiv that are being bombed, from Kharkiv, from Mariupol or whatever. I salute them. These are genuine heroes of our time, unsung heroes. You know, their names will probably never be known to the outside world, but they are really setting a heroic example and they are rehabilitating journalism in Ukraine. Putin's biggest miscalculation in this war has been Ukrainian resistance and Ukrainian resilience. The way that the Ukrainian identity has been shaped by the revolutions and by the war of the last decade has been incredible to watch. Seeing an apathetic post-Soviet society wake up and take charge of itself. Ukrainians kind of have Putin to thank for that because he really brought them together this is a society that is operating on adrenaline right now entirely. And we should be really conscious of that, that behind that strength and that resilience is, uh, is an enormous trauma. When the British royal family goes out on tour, visiting former colonies or countries in the Commonwealth, the idea is to cement diplomatic relations and generate some positive headlines. That's not how things have gone down on the latest royal tour of the Caribbean. Minakshi Ravi is here with more. The Caribbean is one of the last significant bastions of the British Empire. The UK has six dependent territories there, and many independent countries like Antigua and Barbuda, the Bahamas and Jamaica still have the Queen as head of state. However, there is a growing movement to cut ties with the former colonizers, and that's the backdrop against which this royal tour is taking place. Buckingham Palace dispatched some of its most photogenic faces, Prince William and his wife Catherine, to the Caribbean. But before they set out, 100 prominent Jamaican citizens signed an open letter saying that they saw, quote, no reason to celebrate Queen Elizabeth's reign. For British media outlets, many of which were sticking with the customary cheery headlines, the unrest in the Caribbean has been befuddling. A BBC radio show touched upon the subject. Britain's colonial past. Should the royal family say sorry? 
there was hardly any discussion about the years of slavery, indentured labor, and exploitation, which is what so many Caribbean people consider the true legacy of British rule. With protests forcing the royals to change their tour plans, British tabloids remained resolutely obtuse. This columnist in the Daily Mail decided to bash Meghan Markle, the mixed-race wife of Prince Harry, for creating bad blood between Jamaicans and the royals on tour. This visit has not done anything to change the course Jamaica has declared for itself. In a departure from the usual smiles and glad-handing for the cameras, the Prime Minister of Jamaica chose his moment with Prince William to make his country's intentions clear. We are moving on. There are other Caribbean countries also making noises about becoming republics. When their time comes and they choose their new heads of state, it won't be someone in London wearing a crown. Thanks, Mina. The distance between the capitals of North and South Korea, Pyongyang and Seoul, is just 200 kilometers. But those cities, like the two countries and their societies, are worlds apart. North Koreans live under an oppressive totalitarian regime, and many South Koreans see them as backwards, somehow inferior, stereotypes that get reinforced in the country's media. There are North Koreans on a mission to change that, defector vloggers who, following their escape into South Korea, have turned up on a platform they had never even heard of while growing up, YouTube. They vlog about everything, from dating to dancing to dictatorship. They say they want to tell real stories about life up north. The videos are proving popular with South Korean audiences, challenging their perceptions and showing that their neighbors aren't that different after all. The Listening Post's Johanna Husnow from Seoul on the North Korean YouTubers showing a different side of a country we know too little about. Born and raised in North Korea, without computers or mobile phones, They are some of South Korea's most unlikely new internet sensations. Defectors turned YouTube stars. When you say North Korea, many people think of politics, Kim Jong-un and nuclear bombs because that's how the country is covered in the mainstream media. I run a YouTube channel that portrays the real life of North Koreans, reflecting my experience of living there for 18 years. What North Koreans eat, how they sleep, what they enjoy, just basic everyday life. My approach is to create fun, light content about North Korea for people to enjoy. I was born in a place called the Aoji Coal Mine, a labor camp for political prisoners who were caught opposing the North Korean regime. Aoji is not well known, even to people in North Korea. We were the first family to escape from Aoji, and so I wanted to be the first to share the information about the place, to tell people about what I have been through and what other families are still going through over there. Viewers respect my honesty. People are moved by it. That's why they're drawn to my YouTube channel. Choi and Pak are two of dozens of defectors who have turned to YouTube and vlogging following their escape from North Korea. 
Some focus on entertainment, from dating to fashion, even pornography. 사실 이제 북한 같은 경우에는 아무래도 너무 보수적이고 폐쇄적인 사회다 보니까 AV 배우가 Others have gone down a more serious route, vlogging about past hardship or the challenges of assimilating to life in the modern capitalist South. 아직도 좀 생생히 기억나는 거는 그때 배급이 딱 중단되면서 97년도 이때쯤에는 그 미역만 한 보름 정도 먹었던 기억이 나요. Whatever the content, the videos have proven a hit with South Korean audiences. South Koreans are curious about North Korea, but they do not have any opportunity to encounter actual North Koreans in their everyday lives. They are very marginalized. The information provided by mainstream media are quite limited. So the vivid and personal storytelling about North Korea is very appealing to South Korean audiences. 왜 이렇게 열불 왜냐면 저희 엄마가 태어나서 데이트를 한 번도 못했어요. Oh, North Korean vloggers and YouTubers has b e e o u a e n o r t h Korean people. It's not just a kind of faceless, voiceless population that are suffering up north. But they're individuals, and they have their own interests. Choi and Puck's growing number of subscribers reflect their popularity. Their videos regularly generate tens of thousands of views. For the more than 33,000 defectors currently living here, well, the reviews tend to be a lot more negative. Stereotypes of North Koreans as backwards, inferior, even dangerous are quite common, and at times even reinforced in South Korean media. Take Now on My Way to Meet You, a part talk show, part talent show starring female defectors. Or The Moron Bong Club, another so-called defector infotainment program that has been a favorite on the South Korean airwaves. Their producers claim that these shows foster understanding between the two Koreas. But skeptics have called them reductive, doing more to reinforce than to break down stereotypes. Mainstream South Korean media have portrayed North Koreans as the distant other who are struggling from extreme poverty and whose lifestyle is a few decades behind that of South Koreans. The mainstream mass media's format and theme may not necessarily allow the defectors to speak about what they really want to say. These shows are produced by thoughtless South Korean producers. The focus should be on people like my father, who was a camp prisoner for 30 years, people who were persecuted. I promised myself that I would never lie about my identity once I settled in South Korea. But when I was in university, one of the students said to my face, why does our government keep accepting these communists, feeding them with our tax money? They should all be executed and their heads should be thrown into the river. That statement was incredibly hurtful. 
We came to South Korea to be accepted, yet people here also say that North Koreans should all be executed. Fortunately now, through YouTube, we can tell our stories, and I'm glad I can make my voice heard. South Koreans have a tendency to stereotype people from North Korea as violent, as people who speak differently and who need help because they are not self-reliant. I'm not running my YouTube channel just because of this prejudice against North Koreans, but to communicate who we really are through our stories. It is then up to my audience whether they change their views or stick to their old perspectives. Despite their popularity, vloggers have faced criticism, both from South Koreans but also from within the defector community. They've been accused of sensationalizing and trivializing the North Korean experience, exploiting their community's stories for clicks, likes, views, and money. For me, running my own YouTube channel is not just about the money. It's about conveying the story based on just the facts without exaggeration. For example, I rely on Google Earth to show where the AOG camp is located. I tell personal stories. I realized if I'm honest and I'm being true to myself, then even people who are critical might change their perspective as they get to know me better. You know, what I'll always say with North Korean uh, stories and information, there's actually no need to exaggerate it. It's already shocking enough. North Korean defectors will actually keep each other accountable. One person in the community is, you know, sharing misinformation and or totally sensationalizing their story and so on. They'll be criticized by other North Koreans, probably more so even than South Koreans. Defectors' stories offer a rare insight into life in one of the most sealed-off countries in the world. But sharing facts about North Korea, be it on TV or online, can come at a cost for those who have fled or those they leave behind. For Choi, it's a risk she was willing to take. Sometimes I notice threatening comments on my channel posted by North Korean agents. I just delete those. I don't care. I could not run my YouTube channel if I were afraid. I believe some South Koreans do not understand how to make the most of their liberties. That's one of the reasons I keep my YouTube channel going, to make people appreciate and enjoy their freedom, because it is so precious. And finally, for more than a month now, Ukraine has been all over the news. Media outlets are pouring resources into their coverage, and other stories have been sidelined. The kind that during normal times would be leading newscasts and lighting up your phone with notifications. So we're closing the program this week with a reminder of what you're not seeing in the news, as well as some suggestions of where you can find reporting that fills the gap. Starting with a conflict that's been underreported for years, the war in Yemen. The fighting there involving Saudi and Emirati forces, as well as local factions, has intensified. Yemen was already the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Two resources to turn to are the Yemen Data Project. It's out to fill the holes in verifiable information. And Nadwa Dawsari, 
a conflict analyst at the Middle East Institute. There's Afghanistan. Just seven months ago, when US-led forces pulled out and the Taliban took over, it was all over the news. People there are starving. Afghan women are facing more and more discrimination. There are all kinds of stories to tell. Tolo News is worth following online. But there are also many journalists outside Afghanistan reporting on the country. Check them out. And Ukraine has shunted aside what should be the world's biggest story, the climate crisis, which seldom gets the coverage it warrants. This past week, temperatures in both poles, north and south, reached record highs. You might have missed that, as well as a warning from UN Chief Antonio Guterres said the world is sleepwalking to climate catastrophe. Take a listen to Drilled, a true crime podcast about climate change. Climate change can be scary, but talking about it doesn't need to be. For those of you on Instagram, take a look at Earth by Helena. She summarizes big climate reports, boiling them down for her followers. We'll be keeping an eye on those stories and others, and we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.